tuning in, folks. You are listening to The Drew Marshall Show. We're streaming live at drewmarshall.ca. And we're live here in Southern Ontario on Joy 1250. If you missed any of today's show, you can go to our website at the end of the week. We'll have everything loaded for your listening pleasure. Greta Bosper, she is uh, a very interesting woman. She's named one of 2009's most compelling women in Canada by Moore Magazine. Greta Bosper is the author of the national bestseller, With or Without God, Why the Way We Live is more important than what we believe. And amen, what prayer can mean in a world beyond belief, an exploration of prayer stripped of supernatural expectations. Man, this is interesting stuff. Greta continues to lead West Hill United, a uh, congregation of the United Church of Canada located in Scarborough, Ontario. Recently, the United Church has initiated a review of Greta's effectiveness as a minister based on her atheistic beliefs. Non-exclusive inspirational liturgical... Wow, did I just say that? Non-exclusive inspirational liturgical and music resources prepared for for use at, at uh, West Hill where those who hold traditional beliefs share the pews with others who don't. And uh, they are used internationally. There's so much to pull apart with this lady, but instead of continuing to read her uh, bio, let's talk to the one and only Greta Bar- Bosberg. Greta, I will give you 50 bucks. You tell me who sings that song. Oh, my goodness. That's, like, so not a fair lead-in question. 50 bucks. Three. Nope, nope. Two. Nope. One. <laughs> that was ABBA. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It wasn't ABBA. Um, Greta, you're an Atheist United Church minister. What is the... Like, are you just a um, rebellious little cheeky monkey? Is that what this is all about? Are you just struggling with your faith and don't want to quit? Well, you know, if that was it, then I'd probably just quit, but... <laughs> The reality is, it's not it. Um, I'm a child of the United Church of Canada. I grew up there, uh, went through their Sunday school with all those little pins for perfect attendance, uh, went to theological college at a United Church theological college, learned, you know, critical, learned how to use the tools of critical inquiry uh, around scripture and theology and church history and all of that, and then um, ended up in ministry about 22 years ago, and did what I was trained to do. And then about 15 years ago, uh, after some conversation with a bunch of congregations around my area, I realized that all that stuff that I had learned at Theological College and that I thought I was sharing with my congregations wasn't seeping in. And so I started to look at why that was and realized that a lot of it was because a lot of what we did in the course of a normal Sunday gathering continued to promote theology that wasn't really consistent with what the United Church of Canada has been teaching as theological colleges for decades and decades. So we started bringing them into line. That's all. That's all. I guess when, pe- when you're a United Church minister slash atheist, people want to know, the first thing they want to know is, how well do you know Tom Harper? Uh, Tom and I have been together in the same room. I don't know him particularly well. <laughs> I got in trouble with Tom a few years ago. When he first came out with a book, I had him on the show, and that was back when I, you know, I was fairly certain about many things in my life, and I, mm-hmm. I, gave, I gave him a little what for. And then I had to invite him. I didn't have to invite him, but I invited him back on the show again and, and apologized because I had changed in my journey, and I felt like a real jerk the way I treated him the time before. So that's mm-hmm. me. Well, that was nice. It was. It was very nice of me to do that. Um, you uh, don't believe there's a God, huh? Well, you know, the reality is that I have a definition for God that I have used, and that's worked, that was sort of the early elements of it were instilled in my early church experience, and 
deepened during my theological understanding and my own spiritual life. And so I have a definition that I can use, but it's not theistic, and it's not supernatural, and it's not interventionist. So I lead in a, a manner that makes that clear. And part of what it takes to make that clear is not using the word God. So, but, oh, I mean, what, are, what does prayer look like in your church? Uh, prayer is an opportunity for the congregation to speak of what's on their hearts. Uh, they speak into the space. Um, and the congregation responds to what it is that they've offered. Sometimes it's, you know, um, celebration and joy and, and happiness and, you know, opportunities that have come forward and people celebrate them together. And sometimes it's, you know, the most, you know, wrenching, horrific realities that people struggle with in their lives. And they put that out into the community, and the community responds and brings about whatever needs to happen if we have the power to do that. Um, the difference between prayer to a supernatural God and prayer into a community is that uh, prayer to a supernatural God um, is to a being that is supposedly uh, the source of goodness, the agent through which goodness gets into the world, and the promise that something good is going to happen, even if we don't understand what it is, something good is going to happen. And praying into a community is to people who actually get to name what is good and what is bad, and who are the way that goodness comes into the world, and who recognize that there is no promise of goodness, and we'll be shoulder to shoulder with one another, regardless of the pain and the reality um, that unfolds in our lives. Greta, when you when you came out <laughs> uh, as an atheist, by the way, I'd like to I'd like to actually pull apart that moment at that time and how that went down. But let me just start with this: when you came out as an atheist in as a United Church minister. There must have been a part of the of your brain, even in the way back, that said, "Oh, this is so cliche." Of all the denominations, <laughs> right? Who's going to have an atheist minister? It's going to be the United Church, yeah. you know, because the United Church is sort of this. Like I grew up in it too, and I actually had to. Go, I was invited back to speak at the uh, anniversary uh, service at uh, the United Church I grew up in, and I had always dreamed about speaking at the church I grew up in, and I dreamt about, you know, really telling them what Jesus was really all about, and really giving them the the goods and the you know the evangelical thing or whatever. And and when I was invited back, I was no longer at that point in my life. I was at a point of uncertainty, deep uncertainty, and it was so ironic that I was invited back to the place where it all started. When all of a sudden I'm in this this chaotic, doughty mess. There's a good way to say it. Very articulate. Yeah, thank you. You can tell I'm in broadcasting. And and so, you know, we all sort of roll our eyes. There's a little, I mean, there, how many, there's a joke about how many United Church people does it take to change the light. But, you know, there's, you guys are just, um, you're, you're the kings of Kumbaya, right? Well, I think... I would, I would argue that we're not the kings of Kumbaya, but I think that what has happened uh, is the United Church, when the United Church was formed of three denominations, and we've added to it since then, most recently the United Church of Christ, um, we've come into full communion with them in a, this past year, but um, as we did that, uh, we recognized that, as can only happen in that kind of an amalgamation, you've got a bunch of different perspectives coming in, coming together. And those perspectives, in order to accommodate them, the United Church came up with this thing called essential agreement, which meant you didn't have to agree. You don't have to sign on to the Westminster Confession every time you change churches, right? You, ha you just have to be in essential agreement with the doctrinal standards when you're ordained. And then, they, and then you, you know, you're encouraged to continue to learn and stuff like that. But that, that essential agreement element came to be interpreted as something that could allow a plasticity or e an elasticity, depending on you know, what journey you were going to be on, 
um, of our doctrinal standards. So, so some places in the country might have had a very, very lenient understanding of that, and some of them may have had a very literal understanding of, of doctrinal standards. So, so you had a very broad uh, perspective of theology grow up in the United Church of Canada. What the United Church has done through the course of its history has been to try to be on the front of social justice issues, and it has done that extremely well. Mm-hmm. And, and so what they've done, a few years ago, they decided that they would identify the Bible as their authoritative text and make all their other doctrinal standards subordinate to the Bible. But in actual fact, the way the United Church operates or has operated through the whole of my lifetime and before that, from what I can understand and read, is that they have always held the Bible accountable to love. And you might call that kumbaya, but it actually means that we look at the Bible through the perspective of who are the people that are the downtrodden and being beaten down here, and how do we apply uh, what we've learned of the values that were the values that are purported to have been lived out by this man named Jesus, how do we apply those values in this context? And so over and over again, we end up condemning ourselves because of the prejudice that we've brought to situations, and we have to pull ourselves out of it, and that means turning away from what the biblical record may be or what our doctrinal standards might be in order to apply that condition of love to a situation. Wow. You're pretty articulate, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, compared with your mushy brain stuff, yeah, that's not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was it like coming out? Because I remember the day I announced on air that I was... Uh, no longer an evangelical. No, I didn't say evangelical. I said I was. I was no longer a certaintist. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not even a real thing again. But you know, I couldn't use the certainty language anymore. I was no longer convinced that there was a God. And immediately, people called me an atheist and and all sorts of other bad names. And and I'm saying no. Well, that's not what I'm saying. And so I had to kind of because people really wanted to know where I stand and what I you know they want to put me in a category so that they can sleep at night. And so Tony Campolo forced me to come up with this. So I, I, I said, look, I, at this point, I, I, I guess I kind of consider myself a red-letter agnostic theist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Tony and I had a really great conversation after he came out in support of same-sex marriage because, you know, he's been had so many people turn their back on him since then. And that, what is that? That's the application of love. That's holding the Bible to the standard of love, right? right, right. So, he, so he's really moved into that space in that particular issue, and I'm incredibly proud of him for doing that. Knowing what would happen, like he sure. knew what would happen. Sure, yeah, yeah. I yeah. didn't know what would happen. <laughs> no, okay. So tell it. <laughs> so, okay, so okay. Get, yeah, take, give us the synopsis. So what, you're laying there in bed on uh, Sunday morning, and you're thinking, okay, is today going to be the day? Do I, you know, did you announce it from the pulpit? Did you announce? Who did you tell first? I mean, it's, it was a slow burn. I'm sure you didn't wake up one day and go, oh, you know what? I'm an atheist. So what was it? Well, no, it was it was really, as I said earlier, it was really through a process of recognizing that other congregations and my own congregation didn't get what I was talking about in that 20 to 25 minutes that I preached, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't get the contemporary critical scholarship that I was sharing with them. And that meant, you know, preaching the context, unraveling the scripture passage to its socio-political context, and, you know, then proving why it had no bearing on our current situation, and then, you know, that's what preaching was. So, so I had realized that there was this disparity in understanding, and I needed to address that. And I didn't, there's really two steps in my coming out as an atheist. The first step was getting up one Sunday morning, not having a sermon ready, walking into the church, doing the service, getting the sermon time, and standing up and preaching a sermon in which I completely deconstructed God. I just took God apart, 
And there was nothing left at the end of it. And then I sat down, and of course, I reached for my bulletin. The next thing is the intercessory prayers. I have to stand up and uh, and say the prayers and say, "Oh God, in your mercy, hear our prayer," and things like that. So it was kind of ironic. It was a strange moment. I hadn't been prepared for it. I think I'd had this mental block, but I knew it had to be done because people, because of the language I was still using, people believed that. I believed in a theistic, supernatural, interventionist God, and I didn't, so I needed to make that clear. So it's not as though my belief suddenly changed. It's that my the recognition of the way that I articulated my beliefs was a barrier to understanding, and I needed to stop that. So I, so I took apart God, and I, I often tell people, I think I had more hugs after the service <laughs> that day than ever, because ever, I think everyone thought I was losing my mind. Wow. Um, and then at that point, I mean, I realized, you know, I have just done something that I really don't have a mandate to do. And so I engaged the board in a conversation about where we go from here. And that moment is the most critical moment. It has nothing to do with me. I say to people, ministers who don't believe it are a dime a dozen. Um, but congregations who actually say, let's do this. Hmm. Let's walk this journey. Let's engage in this manner. Let's create a space that isn't dependent upon that kind of language and and doesn't present that perspective let's do that and so my congregation has been extraordinary in that work and they and that's what they said after i preached that sermon let's do this let's let's see what this looks like you know the only other time i've heard a story similar to this uh was with mike iaconelli have you heard of that name no. So Mike Iaconelli is an old youth specialties guy, sort of a, a, a great, a phenomenal communicator, a, a, a brilliant author. He, one of his, one of my favorite books of his is a real sh- little small, you know, Coles Notes kind of Hardy Boys book mm-hmm. um, that you would never have found because you're a scholar. Uh, it's called Messy Spirituality. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the byline there is uh, that messy spirituality is the Christianity most of us live, but few of us admit. And he tells a story in this book about, was it him that did this or somebody else? Anyway, a, a minister that said... <clears throat> Yeah, you know what? I'm I'm not I'm not sure I believe anymore. And so I'm stepping down. And the church came to him and said, "Don't step down. Mm-hmm. We want you to preach through this. We want you to talk about this. We want you to be open about this." And they journeyed with the guy for a few years. Yeah. On this whole thing. Sounds like David Hayward actually, the naked pastor. I like David. He is such a good guy. What a yeah. good guy. Anyway, okay, so you came out did you tell the the elders or deacons or whatever you guys have the board, did you tell them first that you were going to do it? No, I didn't know it myself. I didn't know I was going to do it. Really? I did it. Yeah, no, seriously. I mean, I'd had a busy week, you know, those weeks where you've got yeah. a couple of funerals and a wedding and a board meeting and you don't get a sermon done and, you know, and I preach without notes, so nobody ex- suspected anything when I walked in and yeah. without anything in my hand. And did you see people's faces? Did you see people, like, you know there's somebody in your congregation that was going to hear what you're saying and go, oh, I, I, she is so out of here. Yeah. Yeah, of course there were probably people like that. I didn't, nobody said anything like that to me. And when I went to the board, I thought I was having a spiritual crisis, right? But it wasn't. It was a leadership crisis, and I I realize that now. Um, But they, because they were willing to go in that direction, and because there had been a book study group in my congregation who had studied um, Tom Harper and had... I almost said Steve Harper, Tom Harper, and uh, John Spong, and you know Marcus Borg, and they'd you know they'd looked at those books, um, John Cobb. So they had studied all of that stuff, and so intellectually they were there. And when we started bringing the service, the elements of the service, into alignment with a post-theistic perspective, one of the members of the congregation came up to me and said, "You know, 
it's great to see this because we throw everything out the window on Friday night at the book study, and then when I come in on Sunday, it's all back in place again. So now you're bringing it into alignment with what we've been studying ourselves. Now I have nothing to do with that book study. They explore things themselves, right? So, so that really had paved the way for me to do that. So, and many of the people who were on the board were had had been part of that journey, and so they were intellectually there. It was the process of changing what is a very emotional, not very emotional, but it's an, it's emotional as well as intellectual, um, a Sunday morning service. And so it was the process of changing that that became the challenge. So I'm sure people have said to you, uh, Greta, and by the way, we're on the phone with Greta Vosper. She is the, we, we've heard about you a fair bit in the news over the last little bit. She's, she's now known as the Atheist United Church Minister. <laughs> Yeah. GretaVosper.ca is a website you want to go to to uh, to find out all things Greta Vosper. Um, I'm sure people have said to you, Greta, come on, just why don't you go teach at a seminary or why don't you go you write write just write books? You know, to be a shepherd, a spiritual guide, a shepherd of a church, you really got to have your your theological fecal matter together. Well, I think what happened uh, as the congregation went down this journey, we recognized that there are many many people who have dropped off the left edge of church. Um, Kersop Lake, who was a New Testament professor in 1928, said the church is going to hemorrhage from the left because intellectuals are not going to stay in this place. So that's fine. Let them go off the left. But then you leave, like they've got this void in their lives, and there are no communities that really deal with what it means to create a meaningful life, how we do that, how we submit ourselves to a set of values that we ascribe to and how we support one another as we try to live out those values and how we hold one another when we fail because we always fail. There's no community for those people. So West Hill recognized that the work that they were doing was part of creating a space for people who had fallen off the left edge of church. Mm. And so our community is now, we have traditional believers, we have people who believe in God but don't believe in a theistic understanding of that. We have people who believe in supernatural um, realms, that, but may not posit that God is part of that. We have people who are post-theist, people who identify as atheists, people who reject all labels, like, and they all sit in the pews together. So we have found it our mandate to create a barrier-free community. So someone comes into the church who has no idea who I am or what it is we do. They've never heard of us before. They come in because something in their life is erupting, and they need a spiritual community. And they will come in, and they will be part of the church. And it's happening less and less because most people know what we're about now. But if someone comes in, and they part, they get what they need out of the community, and it may be a, a couple of Sundays or it may be a few months before they recognize that, A, those readings that we hear every Sunday, those aren't from the Bible. And she hasn't ever mentioned Jesus or called me to follow Jesus, and she doesn't use the word God when we're praying. So, like, what's going on here? And and one woman in my congregation said, someone came up to her one day and said, doesn't she, doesn't she ever talk about God? And the person in the congregation said, that's what she's always talking about, right? So the people who believe in God hear me talking about God all the time. And the people who don't, hear me talking about weird? how important it is so to live in right relationship. So interesting. Okay, just before we say goodbye here, where are things at with the United Church of Canada? Are they in deliberations? Are they going to listen to this interview and, and, and pick out things and use them against you in a court of law? There's 
probably nothing in this interview that's very new to any of them. But um, yeah, no, we're not. We're in a, a process um, because there was no process in the United Church to deal with anyone regarded to regarding theological beliefs. They revised the process in order to deal with me, and so we're in the process of challenging that because it creates. Uh, the point of the review is that ministers need to be an ongoing affirmation of their ordination vows. But their ordination vows, and this, okay, they, this will be the first time I've said this publicly, their ordination vows, as far as I'm concerned, are almost ceremonial because they are not part of the process. You are not asked those questions in the process toward ordination. You are asked a lot of questions, and the committee determines whether or not you're in essential agreement. Then you're given permission to answer those questions affirmatively. So the question is, do you believe in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I would have said no to that in 1993 when I was ordained, because, you know, feminist theology was big, gender-inclusive language was big, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So I would have said no to that. I would have said, let's talk about it in a different way, right? But I didn't have to say no, because my committee had already said, okay, everything that you've said that you believe and the way that we've interacted about it, we're confident that you are in essential agreement with the doctrines of the United Church of Canada. So those questions are not part of the process toward ordination. They are a ceremonial element within the ordination service. So that's the first time I've said that publicly. Are you... Hmm. Is this, a, is this a legal thing? Does it involve lawyers? Do you have to pay for stuff out of your own pocket? I've got all these questions that kind of come around to, if, if this is a, a, a bit of a, a skirmish or a kerfuffle amongst uh, a, a tribe of believers, then I'm not quite sure why it has to get all legally. Um, because uh, ecclesial institutions are notorious for creating processes that they don't follow and for uh, breaching um, breaching natural justice, breaching so, the terms of natural justice. But uh, it's legal because they want you out and you don't want to go out? It's legal because the process that they set up is, I think, and I believe, is not an appropriate way to change the nature of ministry in the United Church. Right, but well, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase. It's turned into a litigious event. Yeah, because and we tried to sit down and have a conversation. We offered to sit down, yeah. negotiate our way out of this, and they refused to do that. So we are now in a litigious position, and it is a horrifically expensive process. Um, some members of my congregation set up a Friends of Greta Vosper Association, which has been raising some funds, but it's raised about. It's raised less than half of what it is that it's cost so far, and right. and it's costing the United Church as well. Um, I mean, is this the way I want the denomination spending their money? No, it's right. not. So let's sit down and work this out. I mean, I would much rather do that. And the and the correspondence that I've received, both positive and negative, makes it very clear that people in the pews and people in leadership roles within the church want to have this conversation. So it should not be happening behind closed doors with a panel of five interviewing a single person. It needs to be a conversation that takes place in the wider church that calls the church to account for what it teaches its clergy in their preparation for yep. ministry yep. And, and gives them the permission to live that out in their congregations. As, as challenging as that may be with people who want to hold on to beliefs that create a very strong sense of security. I think the United Church of Canada should copy Ted and Moses Neimer, and we should have the Vosper Talks. Hey, hey. <laughs> well, because really, 
there's so much more behind your in you know your story it's just it's not just your story this is about the united church of canada and um and it's about bodies of believers it's about people of faith it's about disbelief and, and doubt well and there's, there's been lots of stuff in the media about um our congregation losing two-thirds of its members and we did lose a lot of members back in 2008, 2009, when we took out the last piece of the service, which held people till their previous, you know, uh, it was an emotional piece that we had not been prepared for what happened. I mean, we've made mistakes in this process, undoubtedly. But when we took it out, we lost a lot of people in the congregation. And they had scores of communities that they could go to. Our congregation, which is now back up to similar numbers that it was before we lost all those people, the people in the pews at West Hill wouldn't be in a church anywhere. They would be completely isolated from community. And so I think the work that we're doing is really important and, and offers a place for people to explore the big issues of life for those people who identify as nuns, who are... You know, they have no religious affiliation, except that they have this place that they can go and, and wrestle with those challenging questions. You just told everyone what my Halloween costume is. Uh-oh, what? I'm a nun. In terms of a graph or a pie chart, or in terms of a black dress with, yeah? It's a conversation starter. <laughs> and it'll be fun. I dress up like right. a nun, and then I get into conversations about N-O-N-E-S. You see? Yes. You see? Brilliant. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. I can see people running away from you very quickly. It happens. Yep. That's without the outfit. Uh, Greta, wow. I I know that you must sometimes get really tired of talking about this in the media, but I I appreciate it. I really do appreciate the time you've given to the to this on our show. Um, it, it is an interesting journey, to say the least. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a good conversation. Take care. Bye. Bye. Greta Vosper on the Drew Marshall Show. Sad enough.